This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Oh My Dollar, a personal finance show with a dash of glitter. Dealing with money can be scary and stressful. Here we give practical, friendly advice about money that helps you tackle a financial overwhelm. I'm your host, Lillian Carbet. Let's talk about money. Today we have a super special guest, John Bergen, who is actually uh, my voice instructor when I went to college. We're having him on because I think one of the things a lot of our listeners struggle with is finding a way to, to live a creative life and make sure that they make time for their art and are doing work that they're passionate about and doing that while also, you know, not being completely destitute. And there's a lot of myths around the idea that creative work means that you will never have a roof over your head and that, you know, you'll be living paycheck to paycheck, scraping by your entire life. And I think John Virgin has done a really great job of doing performing arts work pretty your entire career, right? That's right. Yeah. So performing arts work for your entire career, mishmashing things together to live a life you call stylishly impoverished. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think your story is super interesting to a lot of our folks uh, that listen. Most of our listeners are young people that are uh, usually trying to find their way out of some student loan debt and just trying to right. figure out how to make it work with a lot of hustles going on. So you've been making your living in performing arts. What are what are the kind of things that you've been doing? You could break it down, I think, in, into three categories, um, uh, performer, teacher, and for me, composer, mm -hmm. since I'm a musician. It's true. I've, I've supported myself since I was 18. Uh, doing these things. So I have never had what you might call a regular job. So Are, are I, you usually doing all of those roles at once? Yes. <laughs> and in, in a way that I'm lucky is that I was able to do these various different things. One thing that's hard for a lot of artists is that they do one thing. I'm not saying that's wrong or bad, but I was able to to, to uh, uh, keep a life together through the three things that I mentioned, being a performer. You don't always get paid as a performer, but often you do. Teaching, of course. Teaching is the thing I do that's most closely resembles a real job. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I know I, I teach what I perform. You know, I teach singing primarily. I used to teach piano as well. Uh, for a long time now, I've taught only singing. Um, and then composing... I've, over the years, uh, had mm, surprisingly 
a fair number of jobs, mostly through theater, for which I actually was paid as a composer. Of course, hardly anyone in the world at any time in history <laughs> has ever actually um, um, made their living only as a composer. Well, there have probably been a few, um, <laughs> but it's pretty unusual. Being able to be diverse and the things I was able to do are, is primarily how I've gotten by. Is doing a lot of things, do you think it's beneficial for your creativity? Like, do you, are you doing a bunch of hustles just because that's what you need to make ends meet? Or is there part of it that is also like it's beneficial to teach for your own performance? And does performance ever feed your composing? Performance feed the composing? I think it can. Be- being out there on the stage, so to speak, a- as a performer and having a relationship with the audience, I think that fuels sometimes my ideas of, of what to do as a composer. Would you do all three things if it wasn't necessary for making money? Probably. (laughs) Um, Because I've always basically simply done what interests me. And maybe I've been fortunate in that those things did lead to at least a little bit of income, you know, which all all combined got got me by. I, I think one thing that's really important is to have the right attitude. You know, I grew up in... I guess just a middle, middle, middle class, middle class family, <laughs> middle of the middle. And I mean, we had no money to speak of. I was thinking about this before coming to talk with you today. And I can look back on when I was really, really young, a little kid, when you're not aware of these things. And but in hindsight, I can see, oh, we really didn't have much money. Then later on, um, things I think probably were a little easier. My, my parents were both frugal, but not tight fisted. Mm. Uh, they were very prudent, um, and I guess conservative with money. So we didn't have a lot, but I never felt that. So I think if you think you're poor, you're poor. Right. I've, I've, I've never thought of myself as being poor, you know, except jokingly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when I was in my 20s um, and on my, you know, completely on my own, I, I can recall times that were just really, really thin. I, but I didn't care. Because I was doing what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And my my priorities were, for me, this is just a personal thing. It was important to have a, a safe, secure, personal space. Mm-hmm. So for me, my priorities were pay the rent, pay the utilities, buy cat food. <laughs> <laughs> Very important. Because <laughs> I was responsible for my cats. Um, and then buy food for me. Okay. The, the, that Those were the priorities. You know, I remember... Weeks living on top ramen. <laughs> Thank goodness I'm past that stage. Uh, <laughs> I think most of us feel happy that we're past that stage uh, yeah, if we are. Yeah, yeah. But I was happy because I was doing things that I wanted to do. And for me, at least, that easily made up for, you know, not, not having a lot of money. Did you ever have moments when things were really thin where you thought, Maybe I should just get a real real job now. No. No, really? <laughs> no. I never had that moment. Is how much of that do you think is like an artistic stubbornness in you? Oh, I think there's probably a fair amount of that. <laughs> <laughs> it just it simply it never presented itself to me as an option to do anything else. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a trajectory that I had, you know, I would say from the time I was a teenager. I always knew I would be doing something. Uh, with music or or theater came a little later, maybe. It, ju- it never occurred to me to do anything else. Interesting. So you you initially went went to Reed College, and mm-hmm. you were in Reed for how long? 
I managed uh, four semesters stretched over three years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Reed was a really good place for me. It was um, it was a kind of intellectual atmosphere that was right for me, and that was very good. I finally dropped out uh, simply basically because I uh, I reached the point where I was not being a good student, mm. and I thought you should not be at a place like Reed College if you're not doing well as a student. Right. <laughs> I I would have done well, perhaps like you. I would have done well going to college a few years later. Mm -hmm. But those few years later, I had already kind of established a pattern in my life, and I just continued doing that. But Reed was definitely instrumental in my setting up a life for myself here in Portland in both the music and theater worlds. Uh, Reed directly gave me my my first music job. Really? Um, yeah, through through contact. One of the music professors at Reed back then, um, Herb Gladstone, he recommended me for a job. He basically said, you should take this guy. And, and, <laughs> nice. and they did. That was for a, a church music job, playing the organ and directing the choir. And I did that for eight years, uh, that particular job. And that was my main source of income for those eight years. It wasn't very much. But as I said, I paid my rent, right. <laughs> paid my utilities, etc. Fed the cats. Fed, fed the yourself. cats. Yeah. When you got this first gig that was actually paying you uh -huh. to like play the organ, uh -huh. was that the point at which you were like, okay, I can make a living of this? Or you were so confident already in the past that you were like, oh, I'm going to make this work no matter what. Did you? Were you concerned that like you were going to starve yourself out of house and home trying to play piano and play organ and sing for your living? <laughs> I don't recall ever feeling that. Mm. I think I always knew I could do something to, to get by. For instance, as the years went by, I began to teach more and more. And so that, that always supplemented the income. And then also through, through Reed College, I, I started finding work as, as a theater person, both performer and composer and music director. In fact, I had a job for a while that was... Uh, uh, directly stem from Reed, a Reed theater professor back then, uh, a fellow named Larry Oliver. He ended up leaving Reed and starting his own professional theater here in Portland. And I was hired as the general music director for the whole theater. Oh, wow. Which was pretty cool because I was still pretty young mm -hmm. at, at that point. And it was kind of a dream job because, um, I mean, my job description was to do the things that I love to do. Yeah. I, I composed music for productions. I coached um, actors on their voices, both singing and speaking. Uh, it, it was great. Um, then, of course, the theater folded. <laughs> <laughs> As small theaters are As wont to do. <laughs> theaters do, yes. It sounds like most of your early jobs all came through your college network, despite the fact that you had, yes. you know, done four semesters over three and you dropped in and out multiple times. Right. I feel like a lot of folks that are that are starting out and want to do performing arts careers keep hearing that networks are really important uh -huh. and that like you get a job by knowing people, not necessarily by knowing things, but have no idea where to start because, you know, typical networking events are not really catered towards the performing arts world. Uh -huh. You're not going to run around with your business card and swap it with everybody that has a tech startup and expect to, that to turn into performing arts gigs. What do you, what do you say about the, power of networks and also like how how you like thought about networks were you just sort of just happy every time something panned out did you work towards making sure you let people know you were available for gigs for for me it's partly a personality thing i didn't consciously seek out networking again looking back on it i can see that's what happened mm -hmm. i think another type of person 
would would actually would would kind of go for it and intentionally make those contacts, and, and that's great. Uh, for me, it happened indirectly or maybe a little more passively. Mm-hmm. So I knew people, and they knew what I could do, so they asked me to do it. Nice. Uh, that's kind of how that happened. A lot of things um, uh, I was uh, uh, able uh, to get involved in kind of coming through the back door. I, I got my start doing... Uh, doing a lot of musical theater, kind of through the side door. I was I was playing piano a lot for um, musical theater productions, and I remember once playing for auditions, and um, th- there was a lull, you know, in 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 the schedule, and and the director saying, "Gosh, we haven't found anyone for this part yet," and he looked at me and he said, "You sing, don't you?" <laughs> I said, "Well, yeah." He said, "Do you want this role?" And I said, well, sure. And he said, okay. <laughs> Did you consider yourself like a small business owner through this? Because it seems like you're doing essentially what a lot of now the hot word is solopreneurs, ah. uh, you know, kind of define themselves. But did you ever think about what you were doing as a small business of like the, these are all these clients? Because I'm assuming you were mainly these were not like hourly jobs. These were some sort of right. contract job? Or did you kind of view it more as like, oh, I've got a bunch of employers. I work a lot of jobs. Gosh, I never thought of it from a business angle. Um, I just considered myself self-employed. Mm-hmm. Did you ever like sit down and do do your taxes being like, okay, I have to do all these business expenses as a self-employed person? Or did you just sort of... I, I, I remember this was still when I was pretty young. I, I hope the government's not listening to this. <laughs> um, I remember when it occurred to me, oh, I'm supposed to be filing for taxes, aren't I? <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're past the statute of limitations. <laughs> I've, uh, uh, as a little side uh, thing, I've always, uh, I always have a hard time uh, thinking up enough deductions yep. for my taxes. That that's hard for me as a self-employed person. But, that's, I mean, um, I think that's the funnest thing about being self-employed. Is uh-huh. like you know, I I took a lift to the studio today because I was an idiot and got here late, and uh, I was like, all right, that's coming out of the business account. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, right, right. Yeah, the uh, I I you know I I like to deduct lots of random things, also part of my rent. It's great, right. you know. Right. That's lovely. Yep. During your twenties, you've dropped out of college. You're you're getting by on this like random assortment of kind of performing arts gigs. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think about like? what is my financial future? Or were you very much just like, okay, I have enough to live for this much longer before another paycheck needs to come in from something? As I said earlier, I guess I guess I always just had the attitude that I knew I would always get by. Hmm. And that was okay. Yeah. You did eventually buy a house through yes. through a very old Portland sti- style exchange. I don't this would never happen today. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons that I've been able to be okay all these years is that of course for many years I rented, but I managed to find places that were relatively inexpensive but decent. Um and I know that's harder to do now. Mm-hmm. M- much harder. A house that I rented for many many years, I think I rented there for probably almost 20 years before I actually started to buy it. So as one of my friends said, oh, you mean you're buying it again. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's a it's a personal relationship thing. Mm-hmm. I had been there forever, and I had taken good care of the house as a renter. And um, the old man who 
was the owner of the house, because out of consideration for all that, finally did sell it to me uh, for very, very little. And that was after prices had gone up. Mm, really? So he actually sold me the house for the tax value. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was very, very fortunate with that once again. But again, it's through having formed a personal relationship. Right. Yeah. I think people, it's really easy in hindsight to look how much like luck and circumstance played into successes and failures in your life. Mm -hmm. But it's much harder to see at the time necessarily. Sure. Of course. Those. Yeah. And so you you eventually got a house. So you were right. like you bought a house after 20 years. You're you're like it was <laughs> did you at any point go like, "Oh, I might actually be financially set up now." Did you ever stop feeling like, "Okay, I've got 6 months till the next contract comes in." And, you know, did you mm. did you ever feel like you had kind of escaped a wheel of, you know, paycheck to paycheck or um I guess I guess I feel that way a little bit now, mm -hmm. which amuses me <laughs> because, you know, when I look at how much I actually have, you know, it's not a lot. But because I'm accustomed to not having a lot, that little bit actually makes me feel relatively safe. It would be hard if there was a catastrophe. I never had health insurance until Obamacare. Oh, yeah. So I've only had health insurance for how long has it been now? Four years or so? No, I think it's even less than that. It's like two. Is it? Yeah. Uh, it's longer than that. Maybe three. <laughs> um, and so Obamacare is great. I, I am I am a, a success story <laughs> for Obamacare. I, I, I guess you know I, I was fortunate in my you know my health has been okay primarily mm -hmm. my whole life. Did you ever have to pay out of pocket for anything really expensive? No, not for anything expensive. But then when I did get health insurance through Obamacare, um, you know, I was able to attend to a couple things that, you know, really didn't need attending to. Right, right. <laughs> no, nothing life-threatening. <laughs> but it's like, oh, you know, thank goodness I can I can do that now. Right. Um, I don't know, and hopefully continue to. Who knows? But. Yeah. Well, we did an episode about that, and uh, yeah. we're, we're... We'll leave that. Everybody's going to be good for at least... At least through the end of the year. So right. don't panic. Right. <laughs> the, the lesson of that episode was don't panic. Right. That healthcare is a slow moving colossus and it yep. will take a really long time to make changes, even right. if Congress wanted to move quickly. So right. we have hope. Uh -huh. That's that's all I got to say. I'm yeah. also like, yeah, I yeah. also didn't have health insurance for most of my adult life until mm -hmm. the ACA passed. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah, I'm and I'm now I'm self-employed. So, you know, I'm mildly terrified, but we're, mm -hmm. we're going to move on. Don't panic. Don't panic. <laughs> And this is a question that I'm I'm just personally interested in. What, uh -huh. what are the most number of jobs you've worked simultaneously in your life? Ah, oh, yeah, you asked me that before, and I tried <laughs> to think about that. That that's really hard to answer because the different things I do um, take up different different mm -hmm. amounts of time. Some of them are sporadic. Some of them are regular. Like you've got a church that you play at like every week, right? Well, right now I have two church jobs. Oh wow! On, on the weekend, are they both Sundays? No, one is Saturday evening, one oh. is Sunday morning. Okay, all right. So I have those. And as you know, I teach part-time at, at Reed uh, in the music department. I'm the accompanist for a choir in town. Mm -hmm. That's uh, Their schedule kind of follows the school year, so that's regular for nine months um, out of the year. Uh, I teach privately at home. No, the students come and go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm currently doing a composing project for which I am getting paid. Mm -hmm. So that's really nice. I suppose there have been times when I've been doing maybe four or five th things at the same time. Yeah. Pro probably pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you usually work something close to 40, 40 hours in a week, or is it m much less or much more than that? Well, I have the vaguest idea. You've... <laughs> 
this is what what happens when you have never worked a real job is that you're right. like i don't know right. I, just, I, just, I do things and then i'm done and then i do other things <laughs> like i think <laughs> i think part of how i look at it look at it is that since i'm doing what i like to do I'm composing, I'm teaching, I'm performing, directing a choir, playing the organ, whatever. Those are just things I like to do. Mm -hmm. And it's true in a lot of the situations I'm in, I'm doing them, well, because I'm supposed to. <laughs> um, but it's like, oh, I'm doing all these things I like to, oh, oh, and I'm getting paid for some of them. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Did you ever have aspirations to be a famous singer or a famous composer? When I was growing up, I grew up primarily at junior high and high school in a small town in the Yakima Valley up in, in eastern Washington. And I was, I guess, sort of a big fish in a little pond. And there was this attitude from people who knew me that, oh, you know, John is indeed going to grow up to be this this big famous musician, whatever. So that, that scenario was sort of in the back of my mind. Um, I don't think I necessarily bought into it, you know, in a, in a bad way for myself or anything. And then time went on, and well, I didn't seem to become all that famous. <laughs> I, you know, I've established simply because I stayed in Portland for so long. Mm -hmm. I mean, people in Portland know me, and and that's one reason I get work, and 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 all of that. Um, yeah, I, I guess there there that attitude was around when I was younger. I think the closest I ever come to feeling that I missed the boat, and it's is not about money, but about oh, what 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 if I had been you know, more uh, more determined to become, you know, a, a really fine singer or a really fine organist or a really fine pianist or a really fine composer and really concentrated on that. And I sometimes feel, gosh, why didn't I do that? Mm -hmm. Because I've always spread myself out a, a, a little bit in terms of what I do. Oh, my God. I identify so uh -huh. so much with uh -huh. that. <laughs> so I've, I've had success in all of those fields to a greater or lesser degree. But then when I kind of stand stand back and look at it, I think, well, but that's just me. That's what I've done. That's what my life is. And I'm fairly content with that. Hmm. What is the best financial decision you've ever made? Hmm. 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 I don't know. I, I suppose to, to buy the house. Really? Yeah. Just because it really dropped your costs month to month or? Yes. I, I, Actually, um, my my partner and I are going to have the house paid off actually in about a month and a half. Oh my gosh, that's yeah, exciting! Yeah, <laughs> um, and so I I I decided, you know, a few years ago when when we actually began to really buy the house rather than rent it, <laughs> um, I realized since you know I won't have a lot of retirement. Um, you know, I've saved what I can, but it's not a lot. And I'll have Social Security if we still have Social Security. <laughs> Our country is not a ball of flames yet. <laughs> I thought the best thing I can do for myself is have the house paid for. Mm -hmm. You know, from the very first payment, every single payment, I threw everything I possibly could against the principal. Mm. So I've always paid over because people said, oh, if you do that, it's surprising how fast right. you can pay it off. And it's true. Compound interest. Yeah. It works both ways. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. We need it. We're going to do an episode about compound interest soon. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of people who are at incredibly different financial circumstances than you that have had houses for longer than you uh -huh. and are nowhere near paying it off. Right. And even if they paid similar market value necessarily, like there is 
there is definitely a culture of, well, whatever, this this mortgage debt is healthy. It's fine. Like mm-hmm. you can keep it around. I think a lot of folks that are not used to living thinly mm-hmm. think that they can out earn their stupidity. You know, (laughs) there's sort of an idea that like, oh, if I've been making six figures, I'm always going to be making six figures. And so like the the mortgage will work itself out later. And I see this a ton in like the tech fields where we have people that are, you know, in their mid 30s and they buy a way bigger house than they should. And and like the mortgage is a strain just to pay the minimum payment due on the mortgage, let Mm -hmm. alone, you know, Mm -hmm. throw extra at it. The next question, Mm -hmm. follow up. What is the worst financial decision you've made? I think it was that Carmen Ghia that I bought. The Carmen Ghia was, was, back in the day, was Volkswagen's version of a sports car. They were really cute. And from the, I, I've always loved old cars, as you may remember. And so I got this, I got this bug in me. This was, gosh, this was like 30 years ago, that I really had to have a Carmen Ghia. Stupid, stupid thought. And so somehow or another, I managed to, to, to buy a Carmen Ghia then I never drove it. Really? Why yeah. did you, was it too precious to drive? Was it broken and you couldn't drive it? No. Was it impractical? Ran just fine. Um, <laughs> it was a really cute little car. Uh, it was yellow. It looked like a bumblebee. There was just something about it. I didn't drive it. Hmm. Now, at the same time, I had my 1950 Chevy, which I dearly loved, and I drove the Chevy all the time. So it was just, it was a kind of not knowing yourself right. decision. Uh, really stupid. I think I even borrowed money from my parents, which I never, ever, ever, ever did. To buy a car you didn't need to drive around. Yeah. 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 And I eventually sold it to a friend, you know, for slightly less than I bought it for. (laughs) (laughs) But in in, in the car department, this is another thing. Um, You know, it's an attitude thing. Uh, You don't need a new car. The personal side of for me is I've always loved old cars. Well, my current car was a 1964 Oldsmobile. But I added up, before I came in today, the the buying cost of all the cars I've ever had, one, two, three, four, which is about seven cars, uh, you know. And the sum I came up with is slightly less than $11,000. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's a great example of why buying a new car might be a little more than necessary. <laughs> uh, I have good old car savvy. Oh, yeah. And so uh, the old cars I've bought have been in good shape. Um, You know, the car I currently have, I bought from the original family. Oh, wow. And it only had 84,000 miles on it and had been taken care of. And it runs beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have anything you want to wrap up with? Like financial advice to your younger self or (laughs) anything? Again, it has has so much to do with attitude. Mm Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, obviously personality has an effect as well. Um, you know, I teach young people at Reed, and, you know, occasionally the subject comes up of, you know, what are you going to do, you know, when you're out of school and all of that. And, and it, it, it always, I'm always a little taken aback by um, how much making money is a priority mm. for a lot of young people. Sometimes if I feel I know the student pretty well, I'll actually kind of force a discussion about it. And, you know, say, well, you know, there are other things to consider in life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One of the things that I might have said earlier about my upbringing is that, you know, obviously money is not unimportant because we live in a system where we have to use money. But what was stressed for me was education, uh, quality of life, 
and doing what you wanted to do. Well, thank you so much for coming into the studio and talking about this. I know your perspective is going to be incredibly valuable mm, to many of you. our listeners. Thank you. That wraps our show for today. Our producer is Will Romy. Our intro music is Aaron Parecki. And I'm Lillian Fairbake, your personal finance educator and host. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember to manage your money so it doesn't manage you. Cash moves everything around me. Cream, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, yo. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.